If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, trust that you bring your Bible with you every week. We're going to try and make our way uh, through the book of Colossians together. It helps to have a Bible in front of you open that you can refer to as we make our way through the verses. invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2 tonight. Colossians chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first five verses of the book of Colossians. Uh, if this is your first time here with us, maybe you've not been to church before, uh, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you uh, that you can grab and, and make your way, navigate uh, to Colossians chapter 2. First time reading the Bible, just want to tell you that the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses, so you can follow along with us. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. If you join with me and stand as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight, I want to think about the idea of Christ-centered care. We looked at a Christ-centered ministry. What does it look like to have Christ-centered care? And you're going to notice that there's a theme between the two uh, sermons, and it's intentional because the book of Colossians is inherently Christ-centered. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, this is the word of the Lord. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you as those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom we, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him for keeping it and securing it for us so that we can enjoy it together in a group together like this tonight. Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it is still relevant without any doctrine or changing, even after 2,000 years. Father, thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for allowing us to gather around it, to sing songs from it, to read it together, to be exhorted on how we should live. So, Father, we don't want to take it for granted when we read your word in a setting like this. God, our mind quickly uh, races as we think of just the different churches that are in our city even tonight that will gather together around your word. And we know that we don't have a corner market on the gospel. We know we don't have a corner market on Jesus or, or the church or advancing the Great Commission. We want to be humble before you and recognize that there are other people in our city who are reaching people and we want to pray for them that you would pull out pour out your richest blessings on them we think of park crest baptist church tonight father and, and their college pastor paul ebert we just ask that you would pr pour out your your blessings on their ministry and their church that they would proclaim the gospel and see people come to know christ think of hamlin baptist tonight and mark killingsworth is the pastor there god we just ask that you would watch over that flock that they would uh experience what Colossians talks about, being knit together in love, and that they would reach people uh, where they are. But Father, our mind also goes to people all around the globe tonight who don't know you, who've never heard of you, who the gospel has not reached yet. 
Think of the Kanuri people in Nigeria and the Kazakh people in China, God. I pray that you would raise up in our city. And if you would so, please, so choose to raise up some from our college ministry that would go to unreached, unengaged people groups with the message of the gospel. Not so that we can be prideful, not so that we can say that our church did something, but God, we're just asking because we know that there are people tonight who need to hear the truth of the gospel, and we're asking that you would raise them up from among us. So, Father, use the word tonight, we pray, to challenge us, to change us, to mold us and shape us into who you desire us to be, ultimately so that we can be image bearers that reflect your glory and not our own. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Some Bostonians, people from the city of Boston, claim that on a warm day, you can still smell molasses in the city. Why? Well, because 100 years ago today, actually today, an incredible scene unfolded. A 15-foot wave of molasses rushed at speeds of over 30 miles an hour through Boston's densely populated North End neighborhood. Now, molasses had been prominent in the city of Boston for centuries. It had been a distinctive element to what the people had enjoyed, being added to baked beans, pies, brown bread, probably most notoriously, the production of rum. In the 18th century, this city was booming, and the industry of making molasses was an early part of the American colonies. The time period here, just over a hundred, or just at a hundred years ago, was uh, right before the U.S. entered into World War One, and the U.S. wasn't engaged in the combat specifically, but we were playing a strategic and supportive role, and molasses was actually central to it. You may not know this, but that molasses can actually be distilled into industrial alcohol. I don't know that I should be telling you this. And used as a key ingredient in the production of ammunition, especially dynamite and other high explosives. As things escalated and intensified, the demand increased for more molasses. I feel like I've just like encouraged you to try something. Please don't. Because of its strategic shipping point, Boston was a choice location for a molasses tanker to run between Boston and nearby Cambridge. Well, here's what unfolded. What sounded good on paper didn't work out in actual practice. Crunched by time constraints and increased demands, the project was handicapped to get this right tanker ready to go. But more than the time crunch, it was the lack of attention to detail and concern for the well-being of others that doomed this plan from the start. See, the lead on the project understood this. It was necessary to check the actual transport vehicle for leaks. He would actually have to fill the vehicle with town water. Well, over 2 million gallons of water would be expensive. To save money, he just filled it up 6 inches right above the first angle joint at its base. Since they discovered no leaks, they said, we're good to go. So on New Year's Eve, a tanker with over 700,000 gallons of molasses arrived. 
the tank was filled 13 feet high. This process of filling continued for three years, despite the fact that it began to leak. It began to leak so regularly and so frequently that the town residents would run while it was being filled up to get a free can of molasses that was leaking from this tank. And engineers, some of you sitting in here are engineers, will be engineers, in their infinite wisdom and their eminent concern for the safety standard of residents, rather than fixing the leaks painted over them as a means to fix them. Well, then the fateful day of January 16th, 1919 arrived. Over the lunch hour, the tank exploded, and an unbelievable sight accompanied the loud noise. A wave of molasses nearly two dozen feet high raced through the neighborhood, again at speeds of 35 miles per hour. The molasses blanketed several blocks with over a foot of the sticking mud. Buildings were demolished, and the elevated rail that connected North and South Station in Boston was actually knocked out. But listen to this. This is what makes this story go from kind of being funny to eminently sad. This all happened, but not before 21 people died and 111 people were injured. All because rather than taking care of the problem, the engineers decided to paint over it. Rather than taking care to spend the money that would be recouped in transporting, production, all the different things, rather than watching out people die, a hundred years later, we still remember this event. You say, David, what does that have to do with church? I'm fearful tonight, much like many people are that there is a facade of care that takes place in the local church in regards to our personal relationships with one another that could easily be described as painting over problems and ignoring situations. And the Apostle Paul writes here in Colossians chapter 2 as he begins to turn his attention on what is commonly referred to as the Colossian heresy. And as he digs in, He's going to begin by talking about the way that he personally cares for the people at Colossae as an example of how we ought to and how that church ought to care for one another. And tonight, I think there are three things, shocking as it might be, but there are three things from Colossians 2 that help us to understand how you and I, too, can join in in having Christ-centered care. I think there are a lot of people that will tell you that they care about you. But if we're slow to watch the way that they care for us, we might notice that it's not actually care that is centered on Christ, but care that is centered on self. And what's even more dangerous tonight is that some of us in the room, myself included at times, can be guilty of caring for people in a way that doesn't honor Christ, but only takes care of our own selves and our own agendas. Three things tonight from this particular text. The first one, specifically, is that we're going to exhibit Christ-centered care. It requires a 
personal investment or to be personally invested. Look at verse number one. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul is incredibly clear that he is personally concerned for the situation that is taking place in Colossians, in Colossae, with the Colossians, and Laodicea. Two churches probably combating the same type of false teaching. And he is actually personally invested in caring for them. Now, some of your translations might read, for I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you. The idea here that Paul is using is this word called agnon, which word we get our word agony from. Now, the word was originally derived from the place where the Greeks assembled for their Olympic games, a place where they agonized in wrestling, foot races, where they actually fought to win. Thinking about in relationship to this, some of you may have seen the movie Miracle. It's a movie about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. The great struggle that takes place for a bunch of college students to beat a dominant powerhouse, USSR, Soviet Republic team. And there's great struggle that takes place in that event. And even in our own lives, we're willing to struggle, we're willing to work, we're willing to strive to get ahead. We'll be personally invested. Some of you are thinking about that. Even now, you're thinking about what internships am I going to get to help my education, to help me land the job that I want? What, what placement am I going to get for student teaching? You're thinking about where can I intern to learn more, to get the right jobs, and you're, and you're invested in struggling to, to make the grades. That's basically what college is, a soul-sucking experience where the world kicks your teeth in and you struggle to survive. And there's a personal investment involved. Some of you are freshmen are like, it's only my second semester. It didn't seem that bad. Just wait. It gets better in the sense of getting worse. You're personally invested in your career. You're personally invested in your relationships. You're personally invested in trying to have a relationship. You're personally invested in everywhere other than where it matters. See, what makes this impressive, what makes the Apostle Paul's struggle, his conflict, his reaching out, his striving for them, is what he says. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Here is a guy so concerned, so bothered and worried that these believers might continue on, that he's struggling for them in his own personal prayer. We read that in in chapter 1, and we'll read more about it as we go on. He's struggling for them. He's lifting them up. He thinks about them. He prays for them. His only connection is through Epaphras, who planted this church. He has no personal relationship with the people there. They've never even met him. And yet, he's struggling for them. It begs the question like this. We talk a lot about being a caring college ministry, a welcoming college ministry, a a friendly and hospitable college ministry. 
but is it care masquerading as hospitality that is actually baseless? Because we're not actually personally invested. Despite the fact that we sit in small groups, despite the fact that we gather and chit-chat and talk, we'll come back for collective and have a meal together. But other than that, we don't really think about the people that we worship with. College ministry is like my side girlfriend. The church is like my girl that I keep on the side, the person that we're, we're, I'm in a relationship with, but I don't want to tell anybody about it. And I don't want to define it. I'm not personally invested. You're a girl, you got a date with that guy on Thursday and another guy on Friday and another guy on Saturday. It's how we treat our relationship with the church. When it's convenient for me to be here, I'll be here. When it's convenient for me to pray for the people in my small group, I'll pray for them. When it's convenient for me to participate in small group, I'll participate. Never the mind thinking that maybe my contribution to small group, maybe my texting someone, my calling someone, my taking someone out to lunch might encourage them and help them grow. And it might be the spark that they need to help them grow. Here's a guy who's not even in the same town. And he's more personally invested than some of us are in a church that we've grown up in for the last 15 years. There's a man who's personally invested. He understands that his care is going to require more of him. It's going to require more of him than just being a participant. To being nothing more than, if we were to quote a great philosophical commercial like uh, Progressive, he's a rate sucker. Some of you and some uh, people in church are church suckers. They come to church, they sit, they suck, they consume, they get fat, but it serves no one anything because it doesn't change them other than to make them more fat. In a world consumed by body images, everything, we need less fat Christians who the only thing they do is absorb and absorb and absorb and absorb and absorb. Never once putting it out. Never once taking what they have heard and received and then taking it and giving it to another person, encouraging another person, reaching out, checking in, making sure someone's okay. In a world full of shallow connections and virtual friends, the church can be a place where people continue to not really be connected. And the college ministry is no different than any other ministry at our church. Where it can be a place where we put on the facade of connectiveness without actually being connected. Sure, come in, sit. We'll welcome you, eat breakfast in our small group, share your prayer request. It's great that you shared that. I'm not going to pray for you throughout the week. Go through a difficult time, tell someone about it, never check back in on them. And then you become the person who's like, well, I never really got connected because no one ever reached out to me. Rather than being the Christian who turns around and is invested in the people around them. Friends, I'm incredibly challenged by this verse. 
I got one verse in and I said, wow, I'm a, I'm a poor pastor. Not in the fact that I'm not rich. The fact that often I'm guilty of not being a personal investor that God needs. So I take this text and you turn it on yourself. See, a lot of people think, oh, the pastor's job is just to get up there and just preach the text. If he does that, that's great. If he only does that and it never hits his heart, and a pastor is unaffected by what he reads and studies, friends, you don't have a pastor, you have a lecturer. I tell you that tonight for two reasons. One, because there are several of you sitting in the room tonight who believe God has called you to be a pastor. And a pastor must be affected by what he reads. But two, there are many of you who sit in here who will never be a pastor. But one day you may be forced to leave Springfield. You may be forced to leave this church. And as you look for another pastor, I hope you find a pastor whose heart is like Paul's. Because what I find in verse 1 is a, a pastor who's personally invested in the lives of people he never met. And I felt as if I was in the study this week being told, David, you must care more. Friends, it's not just a call to the pastor to care more. It's a call to every personal Every person who has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ should be turned and focused, white hot, on fire for Jesus Christ. I read in a commentary this story of a, a pastor who was being interviewed, getting ready to be ordained. And he got up in front of the ordination board at the time. And he's just kind of apologetically starting, like, started out by saying, oh, I'm not, not really a gifted communicator when I preach, I don't really stir people up. I'm not going to set England on fire. To which one of the ordination council members turned to the pastor and said to him, brother, we're not concerned of whether or not you can set England on fire. We're worried if we drop you in the Thames River, if you'll sizzle on your way to the bottom. Friends, we need to be Christians who are so on fire for Christ that we're somebody to come and try and pour out cold water on our fervor for the Lord Jesus Christ that we would sizzle all the way down the street as we bypass that person trying to discourage us to find the next person that we might encourage. Every single one of us is called to be personally invested, which begs the question, are you personally invested in the lives of the people around you? Caring for them. Caring for them, desiring to see them change. And what are some ways this week that you can begin the process of caring for those around you? Think of practical ways. One way that I've tried to do that this week, some of you may have received these already. I'm trying to text more people and ask them, how can I specifically pray for you this week? And keeping that sheet of paper on my desk in front of me throughout the day and stopping periodically to pray through those names and pray through what their responses are. That's just one example. I'm not perfect at it. I just started it this week. So don't think, oh, he's been doing this for years. Why haven't I gotten a text? We're at day three. So we must be personally invested. We also must be shaped by Christ. 
It's not enough to be invested. I think there are a lot of people who would say, I'm invested, David. I'm personally invested. Yes, but are you shaped by Christ in your investment? Look at verse 2 and 3. That their hearts may be, this is why I'm being invested, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you read that, it reads as one long phrase. You say, that's a mouthful of shaping people by Christ. And sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the way that Paul uses his language to communicate a specific thought to the point that we might check out at this. But make no mistake, if we just peer into the text and work through the phrases, we will be able to uncover what the Apostle Paul is after. He says, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. So I'm personally invested in you. And I'm personally invested in you because I want to see some things happen. Do you be knit together in love? This is the idea of being together. But it's not a cheap together. It's a deep together. It's a bond. Being interwoven in a sense together with each other. You go to church long enough with people. This bond should begin to exist inside your relationships. Where the petty gives way to the deeper things. Where I'm able to let love cover a multitude of sins because our relationship is one that isn't 30 seconds old. In a world where I'm easily offended and need a safe space, Christians ought to be the people who are the deepest bound, knit together people that people can say hard things to you and you understand because of your relationship with them that they're coming for your heart with love. What a deep call of being knitted together. Are you knitted together with the people in your small group? You you say, David, you keep referring to our small groups. Because small groups is a great place for this to begin. It might be intimidating to come into a room that on any given Wednesday night can have 70 to 80 college students and adult leaders in it. Where do I even begin? Why not with the 8 to 10 I know some of you, your small groups are a tad larger than that. We're working on that. Why not focus on those 8 to 10, 10 to 17 people in your small group? You say, I'm going to be deeply committed to growing in my love for them and being knit together. That's why we want to encourage you to be a, a, a small group member that wants to be in small group activities. That encourages your adult leaders and small group leaders to schedule those things. Because there's nothing more discouraging than trying to create activities and atmospheres where people can begin to bond and form that love only to be the two small group leaders and the two adult leaders who show up. Friends, if you're going to be knitted together in love, you actually have to spend time together. Fake community leads to fake relationships, which leads to fake friendships that crumble when the going gets tough. It also says attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. 
to knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are, all, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The, the basic gist of this, the rest of the, these verses here is that Paul is pushing them, and the reason why he's personally invested in their lives is because he wants to push them to know and grow in their relationship with Christ. That they wouldn't be shallow. They wouldn't be deep. They wouldn't have a fuzzy picture of Christ. But as the, they grow and, and learn more about who Christ is, the picture becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And their love grows deeper and deeper. It's not a shallow relationship with Jesus. It's not a Jesus is my homeboy relationship but one where Jesus is my Lord and Savior. In my place condemned he stood. That's the type of relationship that he's pushing them to. And you say, why is the Apostle Paul pushing them to have this deeper relationship with Christ? Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to be wise? You want to have much knowledge? I'm not talking about Jeopardy knowledge. Well, that is cool. Maybe not even HQ knowledge for the seven of you that are still playing that with me. But deep wisdom and deep knowledge of Christ in him crucified. A lot of times we think of the cross only around Easter. The Apostle Paul is saying this is why you must preach the gospel to yourself daily. Because in Christ, in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Which means every morning when you wake up, and at some point through your day, you have that set-aside time where you're getting into your Bible, and you're reading it, and you're studying it. And hopefully you're like marking it up, and writing all over your Bible, and it's exploding. You're just getting so much out of it, and you're like, I've never seen this before. And the more you read, the deeper you go. And the deeper you go, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. Because you can't exhaust the beauty and the richness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul is saying, our care for one another, the way that we think about being invested in each other's lives, should be pushing them towards Christ. Some of you have friends that their care for you is not motivated by Christ. They may be personally invested, but it's not to push you to be more like Jesus. Which begs the question for us tonight, is the care that we give to other people shaped by Christ or our own motivations? And as you care for people, even tonight, are you in the regular habit of pushing them towards Christ as you care? Look, some of you tonight will go and break bread together. Some of you are not bread. Some of us were hoping for Panda Express on the way home. We're going to eat that with other people. And what we're hoping for you, what I'm hoping and desiring for you, when was the last time that as you broke bread with your friends, you actually talked about what you heard in one of the sermons? Friends, are we, too, are we far too consumed with the things of this world? The latest and greatest movies that are coming out? 
Lego movie too, right around the corner. Probably going to win a slew of Oscars. Be consumed by that. The Chiefs coming oh so close to winning a Super Bowl, but probably ripping everybody's heart in Kansas City and all the fake Chiefs' friends' hearts out of their bodies. Does that consume us? Watch what you talk about. It'd be interesting if we could create a device where we monitor what comes out of our mouth and what consumes what we talk about. A little recording device that it, like, the screen time controls now that Apple has that remind you that you probably are far more dependent on your phone than you ever initially realized. And unless you want to be guilt-tripped by Apple every week, you need to turn that thing off. Mine always comes on Sunday morning. What a great reminder of how much time I've wasted as I prepare for worship. The Lord's like, I'm beating you to conviction already. I just wonder how much of our care is motivated by encouraging and pushing other people to love Jesus more. Finally, we see that Paul here is he focuses on his care for the Colossians. He's personally invested. His care is shaped by Christ. And finally tonight, it's motivated by devotion. Verses 4 read like this. Verses 4 and 5 read like this. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. He has in mind the Colossians, the great communicators, the skilled orators. In mind here. Reads in verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul concludes this particular paragraph by letting the Colossians know that even though he's absent, he's with them in spirit. A good reminder to all of us that just because a person is gone doesn't mean that we cannot be with them in spirit. Thinking about how we can pray for them as they travel, where they've gone, what they're doing, thinking on them, meditating and praying on their behalf. Just because they're out of your sight doesn't mean they have to be out of your mind. For though I'm absent with you, or absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing. So Paul has this joyful hope looking forward to this, this fact. I'm rejoicing for the day of seeing you, see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul closes this paragraph by reminding them, I'm looking forward to with joy, meeting you face to face and seeing your order and your steadfastness. In other words, Paul says, I'm excited and rejoicing for the day that I get to see you face to face and rejoice with you in person at the fact that you are far more devoted to Christ today than you are were yesterday. As we think about our friends and the relationships that we have, as we think about the people we go to church with, remember this is a letter written to a church, and as such we can apply it to our church and ask ourselves, are we motivated by the devotion of others? In a hyper-individualized society, especially in the world of evangelicalism, 
which prides itself on personal Bible studies, personal quiet times, and personal revelations from God. The Bible continually calls us to a community of caring for one another in a way where we are committed just as much to someone else's growth as we are to our own. And so tonight, we have to ask ourselves, when I sit in a circle with my friends in small group, am I committed to them being more devoted to Christ tomorrow than they are today or even in this moment? This goes back to how we care for each other. You cannot be motivated to see someone become more devoted to Christ without actually being personally involved in their life. And you can't see them being more devoted to Christ without actually shaping and pushing them towards Christ. So this isn't a do step one, do step two, do step three. If steps two and three don't make it, it's okay because I'm personally invested. No, it's all three of them together. We could think of these points as a Venn diagram where Christ is most glorified, God is most glorified, where these three things overlap on each other and are applied to the people around us. So friends, tonight I want to ask us, not ask you, but ask us, is the way that we care for one another and for the people who will darken the doors of our church as guests and visitors, motivated by a desire to see them come to a deeper understanding of so that they won't be like what Paul writes to Timothy, people with itching ears chasing every wind of doctrine around them. Oh, that we would be people focused on caring for people in a way that is increasing Christ-centeredness. Let's pray together.